0: All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Hello, and welcome to the PhotoWork Podcast, the talky and touchy feely version of my book, PhotoWork 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. I am Sasha Wolf. And I am joined as usual by my friend and producer, Mr. Michael Chovin Dalton. Hello, Michael.
1: Hey there. You know, it almost sounded like you were answering a challenge <laughs> whether well, or not you were Sasha Wolf.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, because I was like, I am Sasha Wolf. Do you remember that old show? What the heck was it called? Remember like you had
1: to guess who the real Oh yes, yes. I am so and so. I right. am so and so. Get um oh. what, was that, oh, what that was that Show was <laughs> I loved that show. Bring it back. I, I imagine we just watched it in in uh, syndication, right? I don't yeah, I don't I don't know. We were <laughs> So
0: young, but I just remember that moment where, didn't they say, like, will the real so-and-so
1: stand yes, up? Oh, absolutely. my God, that was so good. Yeah, that show should come back. Somebody yeah. needs to reboot that. <laughs> Whatever it's <laughs> called. Yes, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> Let us know what that was called.
0: <laughs> yeah, please. Uh, somebody help us out. Um, anyway, well, I am Sasha Wolf, I'm pretty sure. Um, and, uh,
1: yeah, um, how are you? I'm doing all right, you know, um... Not much to report from our, our last show, which is good. Was, uh, yeah, just, you know, keeping it going. <laughs>
0: okay, status quo. Yes. That's all right. Nothing <laughs> wrong with a little status quo.
1: Mm-hmm. I
0: was up state. I'm back, but we had a little bit of a challenge upstate because last winter the snow was so deep that I had to, I created like this, I don't know if I said this on the podcast last year, but I created like a... A highway road system for peanut Mm. in the woods. Like I I spent days with this huge shovel, wide shovel digging out these like roadways and pathways so peanut could run all through the woods because otherwise she just the snow is too deep and she'd have to just walk, you know, behind (laughs) me. Like in my footsteps. We did do some of that until I made her this highway system. (laughs) But but this year it wasn't that deep, but it had this like ice crust on top. So she was constantly sort of getting punked like she would go out and she'd be like walk 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 fall and yes. you would break and she would fall through and she would sort of look around like who's doing what, this to what, me yes what, you know
1: <laughs> why a are bit you of doing, a challenge or, or yeah. is it why are you doing this to right me?
0: <laughs> yeah what's happening <laughs> right. uh, anyway that was definitely a different kind of challenge but I was beautiful nonetheless mm-hmm. And but nice to be home anyway. So we had a uh, we have a great show. In fact,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, as I said to you before, we started recording just now. That when I was listening back to the edit you did, I had to stop at one point because I just got very emotional. Which <laughs> I don't Absolutely. know that that's ever happened before. Yeah. Maybe once or twice, but it's a really moving uh, episode. So it's with Dr. Kenneth Montague, who is the curator of the Wedge Collection. It's his Mm -hmm. collection. um, And he has a sort of private and then public arm of this. But he's one of the largest collectors of photography by black artists from around the world. And Aperture has published this book called um, As We Rise, Photography from the Black Atlantic of part of Ken's correction and so we, we we talk about the correction and how it got started and what he's doing now and and whatnot and anyway it's he's extremely charismatic he's a great oh, yeah. storyteller so mm-hmm. he's really fun to talk to and um, like <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> those guests um, <laughs> anyway if you don't mind indulging me for a second I wanted to just read off a few notes here for folks so there is going to be. Uh, this doesn't come up in in the talk with with Kenneth, but there will be an Aperture sponsored book signing for the book at a newish gallery um, down on the Lower East Side called Hannah Treori Gallery on mm, the evening. That's I know it's on February twenty yeah. third. I'm sadly. Not sadly, but anyway, I'm, I'm not going to be in town. i am got to go support Christine Potter's event, but uh-huh. otherwise I would be there. February 23rd, um, it's a presentation of the Jamaica Art Society, and you can get more details about that on um, the corrections website, which is just wedgecorrection.org.
1: Well, I'm going to bring my book.
0: Yeah, definitely. And yeah. also, there will be... A touring exhibition of uh, selected works from the book that's going to be starting this coming fall. It's going to start at the Art Museum at the University of Toronto and then move on. So mm. it's really exciting. A lot going on. Anyway, great episode, and it's just thrilled to get a chance to talk to Kenneth.
1: Yeah, you know, just just saying the title as we rise, photography from the Black Atlantic. I just want I want to jump in and and talk about what he said about the title. Every part of this. Is so good. Yeah, every every aspect of from explaining the wedge collection to the book to the title of the book, it's just a an amazing episode. Yeah, I loved listening to it while I was editing. And Doctor Montague is, has this very mild mannered way of of talking about these very important things. And You know, by the end of it, I I just want to be on Team Dr. Montague. Yeah,
0: no, I know. Well, you said to me, you've never said this before. You actually said to me that when you were editing, Mm -hmm. you kept forgetting that you were editing and you were just listening. And then you'd have to go back to, you know, because you're, you're cutting out like any distracting background yes. noises or coughing or saying um right. too many times or things like that. And that you, you've never said that. I mean, that's, you have honestly yeah. never said that to me. So uh-oh. Right.
1: Because, you know, editing is sort of, the two halves of my brain right? There's right. Uh, all this uh, just making sure there's you know it sounds good and, and and like you said taking out the the noises and things but there's also you know making sure the the story flows and right I just kept getting lost in the story yeah. absolutely oh yeah. it's
0: really great I be so happy to hear that um <laughs> anyway well without further ado then why don't we get to it Michael if you don't mind please take it away
1: my pleasure and here's your conversation with dr. Kenneth Montague.
0: Dr. Kenneth Montague. Kenneth, welcome to the Photo Work Podcast. Thanks so much for doing this with me today.
2: Hey, great to be here with you, Sasha.
0: So we've sort of known each other a teeny tiny minuscule amount um, because I'm an art dealer and you're an art collector. So yep. <laughs> um, our paths have crossed, but it's it really is wonderful, not just to have you on the show, but I've, I've really enjoyed you know the deep dive into your collection and the um the genesis of that of course is this new book that you've published with aperture as we rise which is a, a portion of your vast collection is is reproduced in this book and we're gonna obviously get way into that but um, we start with everyone's biography and, and origin story, as I say. So if you could just give us a, a yeah a sense of, of where you came from.
2: Okay. Well, I was born in Windsor, Ontario, which is the southernmost city in Canada. And it's right across the river from Detroit, Michigan. And my parents were immigrants from Jamaica, early immigrants, I have to add. I mean, in terms of that community in Canada. I mean, we were probably the second Jamaican family to arrive in a city of, you know, 150,000 or something. So always feeling like an island, as you can imagine, like from the islands, but going to a new kind of island. Uh, you know, I was yeah. like, you know, you know the deal. I was like the only black kid in the class. And it was a very kind of white Canadian town. But then interestingly, we were right across the river from Detroit. So, and of course, Detroit, you know, in the time that I grew up, I was born in the '60s, so you know, I was sort of like a '70s kid with Detroit. You know, my older brother taking me to see Shaft. You know, the movie first run. You know, then I was underage mm-hmm. to see that, but <laughs> you know, these are the memories I had. And like, you know, as a ten-year-old, I think uh, I saw a beautiful photograph uh, at the Detroit Institute of Arts uh, by James Vanderzee, that sort of iconic image of the couple in raccoon coats you know Harlem Renaissance it's like 1930s they've got the great kind of uh sophisticated sort of vibe happening with the fur coats and the Cadillac with the white wall tires and the Harlem brownstone Mm -hmm. in the background and I just had not seen images like that of uh you know the black community certainly of African Americans because you know I was growing up growing up in an era where it was like you know, TV shows like uh, "What's Happening, Gang" or "Good Times," and and they were funny shows. But you know, I think our family kind of laughed at those shows rather than with those shows. We were like, "This is not our experience." You know, being yep. black in North America here, you know, <laughs> and uh, pretty middle class sort of uh, upbringing. Uh, and I and I think seeing that image it was very aspirational for me I was like you Mm -hmm. know this is who I want to be I I never quite got that sophisticated with uh you know the dress and the you know the 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 brownstone and everything but I certainly knew hey this is a new way forward there are other ways of being black uh in America certainly and I I kind of took that image and wanted to really have a longer conversation with it than seeing out in the walls of a gallery it was like starting point for me to sort of start looking at encyclopedias back then and magazines like Ebony and, you know, and and, uh, Jet and Essence and sort of started thinking more broadly about Black American culture. And it was really through the lens of art. Like I was very lucky to have uh, parents who were not only taking us to, you know, ball games, see the Tigers play at, you know, Tiger Stadium in Detroit or to, so we were going to baseball games and we were going to music concerts and we were going to the Detroit public library and the historical society and the Detroit Institute of arts, where I also got blown away by that Diego Rivera mural, which you can imagine as a little kid is just like Mm -hmm. looking at, you know, heaven itself. So I, I had a really great kind of entree, you know, into the whole art thing. Both parents were, you know, I wouldn't say they were academics, but my mom had gone to New York University and and studied home economics, which, you know, was for women only, and then became a nutritionist. And my dad was a teacher who went to University of Toronto and then couldn't get a job as a black teacher in Toronto and then went to Little Windsor and, uh, you know, kind of had this you know, they had an incredible uh, Canadian sort of story. Their experience is probably mirrored by so many other immigrants. It's like you really have to kind of put your head down, deal with the microaggressions, deal with the flat-out racism, (laughs) and kind of have your eyes on the prize. So, you know, interestingly, uh, the title of that new book featuring works from my collection from Aperture is As We Rise, which is really a phrase that my my late father would say all the time. It's like lifting as we rise, as we do well, we have to kind of pull up others in our own community. And I think Aperture mm-hmm. sort of saw the parallel with, you know, what I've been doing with my collecting activities. So, so that's a little bit of a background. And I guess I should probably add that I became a dentist, like a good immigrant son. It was like the choices were doctor, <laughs> dentist, or lawyer. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, uh, my brother didn't become a doctor, but my sister is a lawyer. She's a judge, actually. So there it is. But um, I think if you you know follow your heart, you know you kind of end up where you're gonna be. And I you know I might have been an artist, I might have been a curator. I had a great love for it. But in my life, becoming a dentist, it gave me the the means uh, and the access to to actually start having longer relationships with artwork than seeing it in magazines and in galleries. So I started collecting probably around the time that I, that I graduated by the early nineties. When I started my dental practice, I was regularly going to, to galleries. And if I had a dental convention at the Javits Center in New York, I'd make sure to, you know, go down to Soho at the time and see, see works in galleries. And, and, uh, it became a kind of a lifestyle, you know?
0: I mean, it, it. I really wonder, do you think you would have gone to, if things were different, you would have gone to art school?
2: It's a tough one. I also loved and still love music and studied music uh, at Little University of Windsor before I got into University of Toronto's dental school. It was actually my undergrad, and the same week I got into dental school, uh, the band that was playing in a little reggae punk band called Contradance, we, you know, we had our little single called Black Preppies, and that was on the radio locally, and, you know, we got a record contract the same week I get into dental school, and I also got into a school of music at McGill School in Montreal, so it was sort of like, you know, music really seemed to be the destiny, but then again... I think the predictable, safe route for the immigrant son was like, be a doctor. So I ended up, you know, doing dental school. And I think it was a tough, you know, kind of tough uh, go because my sensibility was so different than my classmates. But then it's become, yeah, you know, a pretty wonderful thing. In downtown Toronto, we have this dental practice where, you know, I see all kinds of uh, entertainment people, musicians artists. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm the go-to dentist for right. that community. So, you know, it's a fun job for me and, and I get to sort of hang out with like-minded people and there's a creative, you know, kind of component to it as well. So it's kind of worked out, but it was a long process of, you know, self-actualization as they call it.
0: Well, as someone who played has played music their whole life, I do have to just ask you what instrument you played.
2: <laughs> uh, at school, I was playing trombone and I loved jazz trombone and i played a little bit of you know kind of those horn charts those reggae horn charts in a little ska band when i was at university but the the kind of reggae punk band that we ended up forming Contradance, i was the singer songwriter guitarist and so you know i still play guitar and bass and you know it was a fun it was a fun time i have to say
0: you're 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 an artist. I mean, it's just it's just <laughs> all my friends
2: are artists. I don't know too many dentist friends. You're, you're an yeah, artist. Yeah. <laughs> you're an
0: artist. I just yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, well. That's it. Well, you all appreciate. I went to uh, my first uh, risking of COVID. Was I went to see David Byrne, American Utopia last night. So you know, If I get COVID, I'm just going to say it was worth it. Um, oh, it's so great. So, yeah,
2: actually, we saw it at the you know in Toronto here at at TIFF the. Toronto International Film Festival, it opened the festival last year. And it was, of course, because of social distancing, it was like a drive-in thing outdoors, which was also really fun to to kind of watch, you know, David Byrne's, you know, entourage at the drive-in. It was cool. It was, yeah, it was
0: movie, you know? <laughs> I'm sure that was amazing.
2: <laughs> yeah, all praises to Spike Lee, who, who uh, directed that one. It's a really good movie, actually.
0: Yeah, I love those music movies that, at some point they're so well done at some point you forget you're at a movie and you start like so clapping as if you're at a live show yeah <laughs> so you start collecting and are you collecting I think our you know as I said to you before we started recording I haven't had a collector on the podcast yet and so I really want to sort of drill down a bit on what makes a collector and 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 how these things start and how they evolve so are you collecting with anyone's guidance? Are you just going with what you like or love? Are you Are you thinking of a bigger picture? It's going to be a collection of black photographers. Are you like where when you start? What are you thinking about?
2: Wow, great question. Well, I guess it. I should go back to um, my start with uh, kind of having that longer relationship with art, I actually opened a kind of a commercial gallery in my home, which was this wedge-shaped space, a kind of a, you know, a a loft in downtown Toronto, an old knitting factory that uh, a few of us got together and kind of bought it as a co-op. And so that place had, you know, 17-foot ceilings, and it was literally a living room that started at four feet and went to about 15 feet, and it was about 50 feet long, and that was the wedge- Gallery. So you know the artwork was put up, and you know I would have a Sunday afternoon salon. And uh, these, this, the first one was a, a black Canadian artist, Michael Chambers. But very soon we did a international show featuring the work of James Vanderzee, and uh, you know brought his um, wife up. You know the artist had passed away, but uh, his wife Donna Musenden Vanderzee was a guest, and we had about three hundred people come through. My living room basically on a Sunday afternoon, and I thought, gosh, you know, we've sold eight of ten works, and like I've got a commercial gallery and I'm a dentist, so it was this thing that right. you know, kind of you know, careful what you wish for, you know. But yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but very quickly, after maybe four or five years of that, and bringing you know various local and well, mostly international artists to Toronto, I, I realized you know, I'm much more comfortable, uh, kind of as a storyteller, and that I, I really love that aspect of putting the work together but not selling it so much and I and I and I yeah. recognized you know I wanted to kind of stay with this work and every show I would buy one or two or three from the artist and by the time we got to Jamel Shabazz in maybe 2003 because this all started 25 years ago like 1997 it was like hmm, you know this is too big for my house we moved it to a local gallery so it became this nomadic concept from the start this wedge gallery and and we had 800 people and it was this big media event this is when jamel kind of had that book with powerhouse um back Mm -hmm. in the days and it was just a moment for him and we were the first canadian gallery to show his work and you know it was it was obvious to me that you know i would rather kind of do curatorial work uh or at least organize my own collection you know to be shown And it kind of uh, was Thelma Golden uh, from the Studio Museum, who's become a good friend over the years. I think around that time, maybe around year 2000, she introduced me at a studio museum opening to uh, a collector in New York as one of Canada's great collectors of black artists. And I thought, gosh, I'm a collector. Like, I hadn't even really thought of myself like Mm -hmm. that. And, uh, (laughs) you know, she took me aside after that and said, you know, Ken, with your art project Wedge, you've been bringing the global local to Toronto. You should start, you know, bringing the local and making it global. Like take your stories and the artists that I know you must love in Canada and start showing them to the world. And I had wanted to do that, but it really took Thelma's kind of, uh, you know, blessing to sort of go, Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I love, you know, my black Canadian artistic practices are all around me. All these great artists. I need to show this to the world. And, so we, we had a show with Dawit Petros, who was, you know, a immigrant from Eritrea and grew up in the prairies in Western Canada and Saskatchewan and went to art school in the French speaking part of Canada and Montreal, and then went to America and, you know, has that typical Afropolitan kind of lifestyle of a lot of contemporary artists. And he's, he's become, uh, you know, a big name artist, but we were kind of the first to show his work and I collected a bunch of it and it. At that point, I realized maybe two thousand six. It's two streams. My life's heading into two streams in terms of art. I have this privately owned wedge collection, and then uh, I have a curatorial project, wedge curatorial projects, and that became a, a non profit, you know, with a charitable number, and we get donations, and we get sponsorship from corporations and the government, and and that one we, we you know I use that over the years to kind of uh, increasingly bring into the fold, you know, emerging Black Canadian artists. And so it's the two streams, wedge collection, wedge curatorial projects. But it's out of something that was very personal, uh, a gallery in my home. So that's kind of how it started. And
0: When you first started, who, who were the first, let's say, 10 artists you collected? I, there's two things that are running through my head right now that I'm interested <laughs> okay. in. One of them is why photography? And the other is, I almost wonder if you were, I have a tendency to throw in psychoanalysis at some point with my guests. So I apologize. But (laughs) I almost wonder if your connection to black America, because, you know, it sounds to me like there was an early connection to black Americans in the United States.
2: Yes, definitely. You know,
0: because of your connection to Detroit, that somehow maybe you felt more connected to black Americans, in some ways almost more than black Canadians.
2: Well, interesting. That, that's a really good point. Interestingly, I I had uh, so much, well, it was so pervasive, you know, the media living right beside a dynamic city like Detroit. I mean, again, I grew up. Yeah, no, I'm sure. You know, like black power movements. I did a talk the other day with Kwame Brathwaite Jr. We were talking about Kwame Brathwaite, the photographer, his, you know, work with Black is Beautiful and the Grandassa models. And, you know, that stuff was happening. You know, in the 70s in Detroit too, you know, like those fashion and, and shows. It, and
0: you already said you're like the only black family where you were in Canada. So I can imagine that you felt more of a connection to... Well, yeah.
2: My my father was doing graduate work at Wayne State University in Detroit and uh-huh. he did, you know, yep. industrial art. So my mom was... Uh, Well, getting her hair done at the House of Beauty, you know, if you can imagine one of those American, you know, 1970s salons with, uh, you know, women getting their hair done with this bouffant style. And, you know, I remember sitting on the steps of the House of Beauty with my sister and you know, a limousine pulls up and Diana Ross comes out. You know, with like full regal. You know, with the white gloves. Oh and, my god! You know, like fantastic. this is the era of you know, like you know, it's sort of Motown records. And sort of in the heyday. Oh and my Marvin Gaye. So yeah. Oh, I very, can see how very, you're so influenced. <laughs> yeah, like,
0: oh yeah, that's fantastic. I, I that's say amazing. that. I
2: say that, and yet I'm growing up in a household. There, where it's like, you know, images of the queen and there's all this sort of British uh, love-hate because, yeah. you know, that whole colonial experiment in Jamaica is a big part of it. Jamaica, you know, receives yes. its, or, or fights for its own independence and, and gets that in 1962. You know, I'm born just a little bit later in the 60s and I'm like, you know, there's, there's that, again, strange duality, this love-hate with... Uh, the queen and, and and the -hmm. the colonizer. So I think there's, you know, as much affinity to UK, you know, black UK artists. Like I, when I started reading Stuart Hall and and seeing all those great works of, you know, early black British photographers, that really was probably as influential as, you know, the growing up stuff with Detroit. So I had a really Mm -hmm. interesting tri-cultural kind of upbringing with the Canadian scene happening too. And I was, growing up in Windsor, which was a stop on the Underground Railroad. And so, you know, I had my first job, I think, um, was in in the museum world was being a tour guide, a kind of a docent after school in high school at the North American Black Historical Museum in Amherstburg, which is outside of Windsor. And again, was the narrowest part of the Detroit River where, you know, slaves, uh, enslaved people would would be coming across at night and uh, coming to that community. So I also benefited from a very small but very proud and very sort of Really entrenched local black community that were you know mm. descendants of these enslaved people. So mm. it was a really really potent mix. Like where so I grew moving. up and yeah. when I grew up, you know, it was so yeah. critical. I think all of those things are in the mix, not just Black America. Although you're right, yeah, it was, yeah, it's so pervasive in the media.
0: You know? Well, it's interesting because so so you know you go out into these other realms of these these touchstones and things that are getting in your head, but then you do. With obviously a little nudge from from Thelma Gold, and you do sort of then yeah. say, "Oh wait, I'm surra- I'm in Canada, and I'm surrounded by all these great Black Canadian artists." And so the you start shifting, you're correcting a little bit, I guess. Is
2: yeah, is, it's it's true.
0: And so you don't have to answer this, but can you give us a sense of? I mean, I don't need an exact number if you even know it, but. How many prints do you own? What are we talking about? I mean, because I know my listeners will be interested in someone who's considered a big, important collector. Do they own two hundred prints? Do they own a thousand? Pr- like, wh- where are you in that? In that? Oh, yes, yeah,
2: it's, it's more than two hundred. It's less than a thousand. I'm probably somewhere in the four hundred to five hundred, you know, range. And it's probably eighty percent of my wedge collection is photography. But there's a lot of painting as well, uh, and that's in the last 10 years that that's really grown. Uh, video work as well, and some sculpture even. So it's it's beyond photography, but um, I have to say that photography was my first love, and as someone who yeah. you know, didn't have the academic background, you know, I was busy with dental school, though I was always reading so much and, and going to local art openings and seeing work. I just think photography was you know the the easy way in it was the art that was really of my time uh, growing up and mm-hmm. so you know mm-hmm. it was something i could i could sort of sink my teeth into and it was an entry yes. point you know for contemporary art for me yes yeah
0: yeah um well we are we photo dealers are very unhappy with the fact that you've shifted your correcting <laughs> but we we'll, we we'll... <laughs> we'll let you live. We will not punish you for oh, that. Oh, um, hey, still so- buying photographs, still buying <laughs>
2: photographs. Can't, you know, it's not mutually exclusive. I still love my photography. It's yeah,
0: like, yeah. oh, no, not Ken. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So you've put together this incredible collection, and you're now, you know, you're not just a collector, you're a collector curator. I mean, you may not have a position at a institution, but that's really what you're doing. And... How does this book come to be that you've done with Aperture? What's the... I really am curious about many different facets of the book and its design and how it's laid out. But first, I'd love to know just,
2: you know, how it happened, how it unfolded. Yeah. I met Chris Boot, who I'd always respected. I have a lot of his books in my collection. Mm -hmm. I should add that I'm a pretty big uh, photo book collector, you know, many, many hundreds of volumes. And, you know, so... You know, everything from, well, you know, his his uh, Boot imprint, uh, you know, I loved those uh, sort of uh, very handmade looking books. And, of course, Aperture, a uh, big part of my collection, you know, from Diane Arbus forward, like lots of classic books yep. in my book collection are from Aperture. So I, I respected both of those entities. And then, wow, Chris Boot has become... The director of aperture so that was a thrill and I was you know visiting <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> visiting the space in uh Chelsea a lot in the last 10 years and getting to know staff I was on I was a juror in uh Bamako Mali and the Bamako encounters one of the great pan-african uh, photography festivals uh, mm-hmm. a few years ago and and was on a bus with with uh, Denise Wolf who ended up being the editor of the book you know we met probably mm-hmm. 2009 You know, in Bamako and, you know, I can imagine, well, you can imagine the scene of, you know, having drinks in the Blah Blah Club, you know, after just visiting Malik Sidibe's studio and I'm sitting there between Denise Wolf on one side and, you know, Martin Parr on the other side and we're all kind of exchanging stories about photography from
1: wherever Mm -hmm. we're from and what we're seeing.
2: It's pretty great. So, you know, I was establishing these relationships with people at Aperture and Kelly McLaughlin and others that, you know, had been, Mm -hmm. I'd been buying work from them. And then Chris Boot asked me to show my collection at home, works that were, you know, are on the display in my house during the Art Toronto Fair, maybe four years ago. And he was bringing his patrons and, and board from uh, Aperture from New York to Toronto. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we had a great day, and afternoon here in my home. And I think, you know, after that, we started having a kind of a a tighter dialogue about, hey, you know, it it would be, you know, people are telling me, Chris, that I should really do a book about my collection. What do you think? And, you know, he would refer me to various, you know, photography book publishers. And I don't think that Aperture was really at that time so serious about it. But, you know, I have to say over time, the relationship grew and probably a couple of years ago, we started talking more seriously about it. And He asked me to, um, you know, send some sort of proposal uh, and I was very much about, you know, a very didactic thing, like the way I collect, like thinking about it, like hairstyles or music and so forth. And I mm-hmm. had maybe these seven tropes, uh, which I kind of laugh at now because it was, again, so kind of subjective and didactic. And of course, Denise Wolf, the editor, right away, uh, she and uh, her assistant, Lana Swindle, were like, well, let's think about this in a broader way. And they, kind of thought let's look at the works in your wedge collection these photographs through the lenses of community identity and power which which really are the three strong kind of tropes that when you when you really dissect the collection and it was very instructive very helpful between that conversation about you know how to sort of look at the works and talk about them and then another conversation about what the title means, which we talked about, that as we rise, as a sort of a phrase in my family. And then the subtitle, uh, Photography from the Black Atlantic, which really refers to the fact that in those early conversations with Aperture, it was kind of determined that almost all of my collection is, uh, you know, reflective of artistic practices that are peripheral to the Atlantic, the UK, West Africa, Brazil, uh, the Caribbean, United States, Canada. And that really is. A kind of a reflection of my personal story in terms of, you know, mm-hmm. the legacy of slavery, movement of people in my family, you know and 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 so that became that sort of uh, working idea, the theme, this Black Atlantic and thinking about uh, different ways of being black and different histories,, um, multitude of uh, stories from these various regions and over, over time. And, and so, you know, it's, it's a very inclusive book. And the, the third conversation we had was about contributors and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we have a pretty wonderful local, <laughs> you know, writer, Liz Akiriko, who's a good friend and I've worked with before with my wedge project. And she uh, wrote beautifully for the book and did a great interview with me and then, you know, tapped, Teju Cole, who she'd introduced to me, you know, several years earlier, and he's been to my home and seen the collection, and he did this beautiful letter to the collector. You'll you'll see at the front of the book, and and Aperture, you know, kind of asked me to, you know, tell us who you love and who who you think would really, you know, talk about your work uh, in a way that I think will be, you know, bring more out. And um, you know, I was suggesting all kinds of names, and we ended up getting Deborah Willis and. Isolde Brammeyer, Zoe Whitley. These are people who I've known for many years and know the collection and Tika Salman, you know, and some Canadian writers like Julie Crooks. I I just feel so thrilled about the whole thing because it's such a personal project and to see it get love from, you know, people who, you know, don't know me and my little collection in Canada is, is very heartening. And uh, of course the book came out in November of 2021 and a month later, uh, Time Magazine names it, you know, one of the 20 best you new know, photo books yes, you know, it of the did. year, yep. and, which was been great for the book, but also, you know, it's very validating to me because I feel like uh, the whole point for me was to bring in some of the other voices, like my beloved Black Canadian photographers and put them, you know, in dialogue with the more well-known Kehinde Wiley's and Ming Smith's and others. So. It, for that reason alone, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled that the book's come to fruition and, and so happy that we could talk about it today. It's great.
0: Well, I can tell you, I can tell you that I had to look up some of the, um, I mean, look, I had to look up, I, I don't know every photographer in the book, but I I particularly had fun um, looking and getting to know some of the Canadian artists in the book. So, I, I mean, I can tell you that, just putting aside that I knew I was going to be talking with you as an art dealer who's always looking for, you know, people I might work with, but also just, I always want to know who's out there and who's, it's part of my job to know who's making work and whatnot. I used your book as a resource. So Uh, it's having that effect. I mean, it's absolutely working in that way. And so I think it is just an incredible success on on so many levels, and I think it's just a really beautiful project. I think, uh, by the way, noticed that Deborah Willis uh, got the honor of getting to write about that wonderful James Vanderzee photograph. Yeah. That was
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've known Deb since about nineteen ninety nine, and it's uh, we brought her up to Toronto at that time uh, for that Vanderzee show and. You know, she wrote for for um, kind of a self-published book called Flava that we did 10 years earlier. And it's just, again, it, it's very heartening for me, uh, you know, to to kind of work with people who are really the authorities in the field. And, and it's it's great to sort of see a general public that gets excited about this work that, you know, I've kind of been championing for 25 years and not really doing it. Uh, you know, for everyone or anyone else. It was really a personal project that gained steam over the years. So, yeah, it's pretty thrilling.
0: And something else that seems important to mention is it's not only, you know, giving voice to these black artists, but also black critics and curators who are writing yes. about the work, right? Yes. So that's yes. also very, it seems to me, important component. I mean, I know that... I was reading a little piece you did in Now Toronto uh, by someone named Neil Price, and he asked you what your view is on the role of the black art critic in supporting black artists. I'm just going to read what you wrote. There's definitely a difference in the sensitivity and criticality of the black art critics that black art critics bring. We benefited on this book by having so many black writers. As much as possible, I'm trying to work with black people who have a certain knowledge to bear. There are times when critics can completely miss the point or a cultural reference. We feel strongly about the need for more black writers. Um, so you go on a bit, but I'll just stop there. But can you talk about that a bit? Because I, I think that's something that's you know <laughs> I'm stating the obvious, but that's really come up in the in the past number of years, particularly in the past couple of years. Can you talk about that and the importance of? Because of course it's true that you know, there are cultural references that are very important in some black artwork that white critics just just miss. So
2: right, how right. do you
0: think about that?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I think, again, it's been a personal journey. I mean, I'm in my 50s, so I've gone through many years of visits to major institutions where I've been sometimes, you know, beyond disappointed, like absolutely dumbfounded when, you know, I will go to New York for, you know, an opening at MoMA, say, you know, 20 or 25 years ago, and had seen work in in artist studios, Uh, I think of examples like Ellen Gallagher and other people who were coming up at that time that weren't yet, you know, being shown in major institutions and were doing Absolutely innovative work that was kind of I, I could see even with my limited experience as a uh, an art lover that it was just on another level. And why are we not seeing these black artists in these major institutions? Why are all these kind of commercial gallery shows, you know, the big galleries, not showing these artists? Uh, you know, that mm-hmm. I'd also loved that you know had an important history that just. Wasn't being told. Another a great example is Barclay Hendricks, you know, who who became a really good friend. Uh, you know, he died mm-hmm. um, in 2017, but boy, you know, we we traveled to Jamaica together. We, you know, I bought one of his great paintings uh, well before he was picked up by a major gallery, and mm-hmm. you know, like I, I was sort of like, why aren't people seeing the greatness here? And mm-hmm. and it took a long time for me to you know kind of realize that it wasn't. You know so much being missed, it just wasn't even on the radar. It was like a, a deliberate sort of uh, well, it was really you know, at the root of it, a uh, long, long history of exclusion mm-hmm. and and kind of like maintaining a status quo where you know, and this isn't just for black artists, it was a long history of white male artists that sort of are mm-hmm. you know, the ones to be given their praise and respected in the canon and then everyone else was like in the category of other, whether you were a woman, gay, of color, uh, you know, it, it just it just was bananas to me that there was this other history that was sort of in this other compartment and not part of the the main story. So it's been very, mm-hmm. very beyond validating it's like very, very heartening to me to see this as uh, beginning because not it's not over, but it's beginning to change, and I see that because you know I'm a trustee at the Art Gallery of Ontario in Toronto, which is kind of our MoMA here, and you know I see it on a micro level in in our institution, and I can kind of apply it on a macro level to everywhere that you know these these ideas of how institutions show work, what they collect, it's beginning to change because. The audience is demanding it basically, you know, now that communication is is sort of unprecedented, the way that we kind of disseminate information, not just social media, but in every way, it's just like the cat's out of the bag. You cannot put the genie back in the bottle. Like you can't go back to the Mm -hmm. old way of doing things. There's too much great work that needs to be seen and celebrated. And so... You know, my personal mission is really around collectors. I think we need more black collectors. I've had years of years of being not only that island when I was growing up, but also the island in my life as a collector, going to international art fairs and always always being that only black collector in the room, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's changing. Uh, but, you know but it's, it's a slow process and and I'm on a mission to kind of make sure that, uh, black folks on every level, not just people of means, but on every level, start understanding the, the urgency, the power, the importance of, you know, keeping a little for ourselves, as I say, you know, it's like we, you know, ownership of, of artwork is essential in, um, seeing work and being able to talk about it from a particular perspective. I think it's, it's, it's really important that we don't you know, miss this moment where Black artists are sort of uh, moving to center stage in terms of the art market and, you know, have all that work leave the hands of the Black community. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I think deeply about that because not just in the sense of generational wealth and all that practical stuff about, you know, investment, but also just uh, spiritually, that work, you know, it it means something, I think, to me in a different way than it might for a collector that's outside of my community. There's a long kind of history that I've alluded to that I think is reflected maybe in a, in a kind of a dialogue of the works in my collection. And I think that the way it's put together is very dependent, very much uh, a part of who I am as a Black individual. So I I think that, you know, there are many more stories to be told and, and storytelling, you know, to happen with, you know, within other Black-owned collections. So that's something that I'm I'm really kind of pushing um, in, in very tangible ways, like getting together with other aspiring uh, Black collectors and other people in the community who are investing in other things, stocks and houses and cars. And, hey, like, mm-hmm. what about art? Like, why are you not... Mm-hmm. You know thinking about this some an investment that you can love every day and live with rather than you know investing in some chain store or some other thing that is Mm -hmm. bringing you an income but it's not something that you love or, or it's not moving the dial forward because patronage is really what it's about if we can kind of do this thing with love and care and kind of keep it in the community wow you know for me that's that's something i think about more and more because i have Two young kids, two young boys, age seven, age four. I want them to go to the AGO in Toronto and feel like the work that's on the wall in the institution kind of reflects who they are. I want them to have that singular experience I had with that, you know, one work of a black artist I saw at that time at the Dia, and and it was burned in my brain. I want them to to right. be able to have that. So you know, we work toward that. In everything that we do and i you know
0: let me just excuse me i just want to clarify yeah. something for people listening a lot yeah. of those because you just said something really important a lot of the artwork that you see when you go into a museum is a gift from a collector so that's yes. why it's so important that's that's what connects when you say you want your boys to go into a museum and see work by black artists that work is going to get there not just because A curator finds the funds within the museum, but also because they either borrow or gifted the work from a black collector or from a collector. That's how that's, you know, you see when you go to museums, the tags underneath the artwork, a gift from or bar on loan from. And so it is incredibly important to if we're going to assume, or if you know more black art will be bought by or could be bought by black collectors, then you will see more more work by black artists in museums. Period, because that is
2: thus that's the right that's funnel. the way that's for, how it works. Yeah. Yeah, I I really appreciate you um, expanding on that and making that clear, Sasha. It's like, I I can give a great example quickly about that. In, In Toronto at the Art Gallery of Ontario, again, as a trustee, I was asked by a Black curator, Julie Crooks, at that institution to take a look at work that was in a private collection in New York, the Montgomery Collection. And it's a sort of treasure trove of vintage, you know, images, black and white images, mostly from the Caribbean Mm -hmm. in that colonial era, you know, 3,000 plus Mm -hmm. items. And, you know, I flew down to New York with, uh, you know, the chief curator at the AGO and we spent an afternoon looking at this work. And Julie Crooks, the curator and myself, took it on as a mission to sort of work with black and Caribbean folks of means in Toronto to sort of make sure that you know we we bought this work ourselves right. yeah. for the AGO. Mm-hmm. It was about a three hundred thousand dollar uh you know investment and we got a lot of people you know though you know when you look at those works now which is part of a show called Fragments of Epic Memory that's on at the AGO if you look at that work at center stage in that show of vintage and contemporary Caribbean artists, you see uh, those names, you know, and there's probably you know yep. 16 names, 20 names of different people, and they're all in my community, and I'm very proud of that. Like mm-hmm. we petition yep. those people, Should and be. then you yeah, know they'll hopefully you know sense. go on and and buy more work that they will one day gift to the to the institution. So that's well, you gave how you them
0: an entry. Yes, I mean, look, the thing with the art world is. This is like double intimidation because the art world is intimidating for almost everyone to enter, you know. Yes. So I can only imagine, or maybe I can't, but anyway, what it would be like to be the only black person at an art fair or in a room or whatever, in an environment that's, that is yep. that is, on the face of it intimidating. I mean, I can feel intimidated going into an art gallery. And I'm a I'm a gallerist. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. it's almost designed to make you feel freaked out. I mean, it's 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 it can be so unwelcoming and it can be really a difficult environment. And so I think what you're doing to try and and sort of make the black community that that you're connected to to be almost like their Sherpa is, is so wonderful because people need that. Everyone needs that who's trying to sort of get into it because often there's a way in which you walk in and you sort of scratch your head and you think, Am I, I don't get it. Am I not smart enough? Do I not have enough art history knowledge? Why are these people you know staring at me in a way that makes me want to run for the exit like you know it's 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 a strange <laughs> yeah. sort of Oh no
2: <laughs> I I could literally tell you about being rushed out you know like a, a poor little gallery girl having to be sent over to me by you know then an owner of one of these well-known photography galleries mm-hmm. many years ago I was you know asked to leave like you know you know this this poor young woman is like you know what are you doing here? And uh, you know I'm just looking at art, and you know can you please leave? And oh. I was like, wow, like uh, I, I know that brutal. experience. You know, yeah, yeah it, it horrible, happens. Horrible, horrible. And you know I think things are changing, but I also hear from other folks in my community these stories even now. So I know, of course, that you know it. it there's a ways to go,
1: oh, and, yeah, and i and I have yeah, to say, I'm, yeah, I'm not
2: alone in this in this uh, kind of mission. I mean, Mark Seely's got a great organization, mm-hmm. uh, in London with, you know, uh, autograph and he's been championing black artists and getting folks to sort of buy work in the community as well. And I mean, I came up with a bunch of people who I love, uh, some of us, some of them are not with us anymore. Like Oakway and Wazer and BC Silva and others that, that, you know, really thought deeply about the challenges and, you know, the joys of our own community beginning to sort of, um, let's say, lead the conversation rather than, mm-hmm. you know, wait, wait for handouts. And, and I think, mm-hmm. you know, in, in my role as a collector is to work on that, on that end, you know, they were curators and they do their thing, but my thing is really at this point, hey, what can I do as a black collector that's going to kind of move things forward? And I think it's about you know, creating more black collectors.
0: Yeah, making people feel comfortable. And, you know, I think once people... It's very hard to fall in love with art when you're standing there feeling petrified. So you need to feel at ease, uh, comfortable to really absorb this thing that is... You know, in many instances, of course, not all, some things are very, you know, conceptual and and heavily intellectualized. But so much of the work, and I know the work that you love and collect, is extremely emotional. And you have to be able to access those emotions, and that takes a certain amount of ease. And so creating ease and a sense of belonging and being welcomed you know, is so, in, is so important for everyone, you know, I mean, yeah, that's, 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 that's me well so said, important actually, yes. in the
2: art yeah, world. Yeah. it's So true. So true. Well,
0: listen, we're sort of coming to the end here. I, I do think the book is just so beautiful. And I urge everyone to get a copy. And the way the text is interwoven is really, really beautiful. It's not the text is not punishing as text often can be um, <laughs> yeah. in fact it I mean really a photo book's got to be about
2: the pictures you know so you know you it you does. have to have a strong writing but I do think you know and, and I'm gonna cut in to say that, you know, I didn't mention that, you know, the, the choice that Aperture made about the designer of the book uh, and choosing a, a woman named Jeanette Abink who, you know, yeah, I think she beautiful designed, design. yeah, she did, you know, Dwell a Magazine and all this sort of contemporary stuff. But she also, you know, had this idea uh, of a really beautiful gesture to sort of reach out to a emerging black typographer, Trey Seals, uh, with vocal type. And he kind of created this custom font that you see, you know, with this "As We Rise" like the the logo mm-hmm. form. It's it's kind of based on those handwritten signs, you know, from civil rights movement, like yep. you know the sanitation workers with those "I Am a Man" signs, and yep. that's that's kind of throughout the book in the chapters and and uh, in the titles, and it's just. A really lovely gesture that that book designer said, "Hey, let's, let's go with you know." Young no, black I'm
0: so glad you're designer. mentioning that because when you put that together with what you were talking about earlier about some of Denise Wolf's suggestions, I think you've also given people really sort of woven into this conversation a really clear idea of what it takes to make a book and and how wonderful and important it is to be open to the suggestions of your team that is put together because these oh, people yeah. are great at what they do. And, you know, sometimes we have an idea and, and someone else comes along and says, why don't you think about this? And the next thing you know, you're thinking, Oh my God, of course, of course they're yeah. right. How did I not think of that? But, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so-
2: I'm super lucky because, you know, I have a collection manager, Maria Kanlopoulos and and another uh, assistant, uh, Emily Kronig who have been with me, gosh, you know, uh, beyond a decade now. And they were part of that book team with Liz Akiriko. And so our Toronto team was strong. Like, they they kind of understand that it's my baby, but they gave yeah. great sort of uh, suggestions that, you know, balanced the 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 stuff that was coming from Denise and Lana. So I, I feel very lucky uh, to be supported yeah, was, by the a, people you had around me, uh... you know it was a, it was team, a good team of
0: superheroes yeah. yeah
2: it really was yeah
0: well ken thank you so much really
2: oh come on Sasha. it was my pleasure i enjoyed talking to you and you know we again we have a a great relationship around art and i look forward to sort of you know connecting with you as uh you know you've been a champion of many artists uh including some who are in the book that work that i purchased from your gallery so i mean (laughs) i have to give you all praises too you you know you introduced me to some really great work too so thank you
0: a a joy working with you and talking with you so uh be well and i look forward to the next time i'm up there you're down here and maybe we can uh we can get together that would be wonderful
2: for sure thanks so much sasha
0: okay all right ken take care be well
2: peace and love i'll see you
1: Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is produced by me, Michael Chovan dalton of Real Photo Show. The executive producer is Sasha Wolf, and our theme music is by Jay Walter Hawks. You can hear Photo Work on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, and be sure to subscribe on any one of those services, or wherever you listen to podcasts.